Welcome to Growth Mindset University. I'm your host, Jordan Paris, and this show is all about learning the lessons we should have learned in school but did not, so that we can succeed in the progressive new age of business and life we find ourselves in today. Each episode will feature a brand new lesson, and now it's time for today's lesson. So put your thinking cap on, because school is now in session. When I first started this podcast, I had no clue what I was doing, and it showed. This podcast was terrible in the beginning, so much so that when people tell me today that they listen to early episodes, I cringe because it was just that bad. But along the way, of course, I figured things out and started growing as I was going. But I wish I knew these things in the beginning. I could have saved so much time, money, and just sheer embarrassment. Now I'm solving for all of the unknown variables of podcasting for you with my brand new course, How to Become a Rockstar Podcaster. Oh, and by the way, it's completely free. In the course, I give away every single one of my secrets from marketing to building a business around your podcast and monetizing your podcast without ads. I put a ton of effort into this course over the past few months, and it is extremely professional. And this is something that people around me said I should be selling for 400 bucks, but I said, no, I am giving this away for free. I couldn't think of something better to share with you. So for free access to my new course, How to Become a Rockstar Podcaster, you can go to jordanparis.com forward slash course. That's jordanparis.com forward slash course for free access to my brand new course, How to Become a Rockstar Podcaster. I look forward to seeing you in the course. Let's build a business around your podcast. I am extremely grateful that you are here with me today on Growth Mindset University. Just want to let you know that two times per week, we have interviews with the best of the best. New York Times bestselling authors, billionaires, the like, the most successful people in the world, people like Mark Manson, Naveen Jain, James Altucher, so many more. And I don't want you to miss these interviews. So go ahead and subscribe to this podcast, Growth Mindset University, wherever you are listening right now. One of my favorite things is when you reach out to our guests that we have on the show. So for example, if you enjoy today's guest, please reach out to them. Tell them that you enjoyed today's episode. Send them that token of gratitude. Like, look, I heard John Jordan's show and it was so good. This really impacted me. If you do this with every guest, you're going to start building a world-class network in record time. This is how I built my network. So this is just another way I'm looking to give back to you here. Just give you this little tip. So reach out to our guest today. And now without further ado, please enjoy the show. My guest today is Rand Fishkin. Rand is the co-founder and CEO of SparkToro and was previously the founder of Moz, M-O-Z dot com. As the CEO of Moz, he grew the company from seven employees to 134, revenues from $800,000 to $29.3 million, and traffic from 1 to 30 million annual visitors. Moz was also named to the Inc. 500 five years in a row. Rand did all of this in seven years as CEO. Wow, I just rhymed there. I'm like Dr. Seuss. In a row and CEO, I didn't even realize. 
He's dedicated his professional life to helping people do better marketing through his blogging, videos, speaking, and his book, Lost and Founder, which I've read. And it's a great book that if you have anything to do with entrepreneurship or if you are an entrepreneur, or solopreneur, I, I don't even care. If Even if you don't have some big company, like, this is the book to read it, on all things entrepreneurship, highly endorse. And if you feed Rand great pasta or great whiskey, he'll give you the cheat code to rank number one on Google, or so the rumor has it. Maybe we'll get that out of him today, even though I don't have pasta or whiskey right now. Rand, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Great to be here. So as I as I mentioned uh, before we started talking here, the Moz Bar is something that I've been using for three years, as well as your other tools with Moz. And it's so great because I love to I love to go to people's websites. You know, people ask. I get so many requests every day to be on the podcast, and I go to their website, and the the Moz Bar, their domain authority is one. It's like, you have no credibility. <laughs> and there's all these people. And I see, I see, uh, you know, oh my gosh, like the, on the contact form, like, please allow this much time with due to a high volume of inquiries. And I see that their domain authority is three. And I'm like, hold on a second. I don't think you're getting visitors. It's a lie. <laughs> so I, and then, and then with SparkToro now, your fake followers audit for twi- Twitter. Just a, a genius tool that I saw that and I was like, oh my God, somebody made a fake followers audit. This is the best thing ever. So I was like, I was putting in a bunch of people and some people are at 40%. There's like a, there's a normal range though that That's right. everyone has fake followers. So like, cause Almost I had, I had like, I'd like. I forget what it was that I did a while ago, but it was under 10%. And that's Oh, that's really yeah, that's very, very low, actually. So I think I think my account is close to 25-30%, maybe even more than that. And that's not unusual when you get into the you know few hundred thousand followers, right? That a large number of bots and inactive accounts and accounts that haven't logged in in a long time follow people like that. Yeah, that's interesting. So you can't really have a pure account that that's going to make for perfect and like really great engagement rates. There's always going to be a couple of fake followers oh, mixed yeah, in. Absolutely. And I think, have. you know, this can make you feel a little bit better about your Twitter followers as well. If you look and you you say to yourself, gosh, I have a thousand people following me on Twitter. I only ever get engaged with by 200 of them. You know, and you look and you see that four or 500 of your followers are actually some combination of bots, inactive, never log in, spam, et cetera. Um, well, it's very plausible then that you're getting, you know, 50% engagement rate from the people you who are following you. And that's extremely high. Yeah. So if somebody has on Twitter and I, you know, you, Rand, we see this all the time where it's somebody who has you know, 16,000 followers, 70,000 followers, they struggle to get one like on a post. Does it always mean that they bought fake followers or it just is it just a big colossal accident? Um, it does not always mean that. It, it can be indicative of that. It can also be indicative of content that's really boring um, and also of getting caught in sort of the um, algorithmic, al- algorithmic flywheel filter that Twitter has, right? So, you know, on the, on the good side of things, if you are sending tweets that regularly get very high engagement, lots of people comment on them, lots of people like them, 
lots of people, Twitter thinks that lots of people log in and, and log in more because they see your tweets, then Twitter will show them to you more, right? They will appear in the timeline more and more. Likewise, if their machine learning system learns that, you know, Rand's tweets or Jordan's tweets are boring, they don't engage people, uh, people don't come back to them, they don't get likes, they don't get retweets, they don't get comments, they don't get engagement, guess what? They're going to put them at the bottom of the timeline so almost no one who's following you technically ever sees them. And you can check that by looking at the impression counts of your tweets, right? So if you see, gosh, you know, no one ever likes my tweets, well, what is the impression count like? Is it seven people out of your 7,000 followers? If so, that means Twitter is showing it at the very bottom of the timeline to a very small number of people. And yeah. you can get caught in that trap, right? Even if you're sending great tweets, if your last few hundred tweets were boring, your last few dozen tweets were boring, Twitter's going to push you down. Yeah, you get demoted. And we see this happening on Instagram. That's right. And Instagram, Facebook. Facebook. Reddit yeah. is like this with submissions. Um, which we call it? Uh, 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 LinkedIn is like this. Uh, Pinterest what? is like this. So they they all work the same, right? They're all trying. They're all designed to create engagement. They all have machine learning based algorithms that that you know have neural networks that learn against signals that have been predictive of high engagement in the past. And if you get into that, you know, sort of low engagement uh, cycle, it's very hard to break out. So let's say in a hypothetical scenario, it's not hypothetical, but say I have 28,000 on LinkedIn and I'm getting between 200 and 1,000 likes and about a hundred, you know, hundreds of comments too. Is that like, I'm in, am I crushing it? Am I okay? Well, I, am yeah, I... You're in the, you're in the very, very highest echelon of LinkedIn right there because uh, LinkedIn has a lower login rate per user than most of the other platforms. So remember that when you have these followers on LinkedIn, right, the chances that they are logging in daily is lower than uh, Twitter, lower than Facebook, lower than Instagram, lower than uh, I think even Pinterest. So yes, you're, you're yeah. doing extremely well with those sorts of ratios. Excellent. And the reason I bring all of this up with the fake followers audit is to point out the danger, the hidden danger of buying followers because they're you know there's all these companies that say 100% real followers and they're not <laughs> I even I so so Rand after the fake followers audit for Twitter that you had I went and I said okay I'm going to go I'm going I found this website and I'm going to buy 100 fake followers cuz they said 100% real but really high quality and let me I like, I've never done this before yeah, let me see right. what happens and I did it and it was all, you know, nobody had a picture, zero followers, following a thousand. And then, so I found out that this company has fake retweet. You, you can buy fake retweets too and fake likes. And so I saw, so like the, these bots that followed me were all retweeting this one guy named, I won't call him out, but he's, he's got like a million followers, quote unquote followers. Mm -hmm. And these bots are all retweeting his tweets and i was like oh wow i just found this guy out but i went and it was so damaging the fake followers i i i went through manually and blocked every single one of them so that they're not following anymore because following me anymore because i was like i can i cannot have this so yeah really big danger you know your content is going to stop over time stop getting seen if you buy fake followers correct 
I mean, I think the real concern is if uh, Twitter or Instagram or whichever platform you're using to, on these uh, fake followers, if you buy and the network hasn't figured out that those followers are fake, their low engagement rates could harm your engagement rates with real people, right? Having a bunch of followers who don't ever like, comment, retweet your stuff, um, that is that is really going to harm you in your your sort of long term perspectives of being seen, right? It's gonna it's gonna make you look to the engagement algorithms like you are worse off than you actually are. In an ideal scenario, right, you would take a bunch of these uh, folks who never engage with any of your stuff, and you might even consider blocking them or having you know getting rid of them as followers in order to increase your percentage of engagement rate. It almost works like email lists. You know how email spam works, right? So you have a mail yeah. list of a thousand people. If you get a high ratio of unsubscribes and spam, Mailchimp is going to stop sending, right, for you. If you get a lower rate, Mailchimp might keep sending, but Gmail will filter you to the promotions tab, right? So you won't be seen by as many people. So that you know, there's all these kinds of things um, that that can happen as a result. And so it's just, yeah, it's it's really dangerous, I think, to play that game. Well, you mentioned the emails. Uh, oh, for, well, before we go any further, we just got so much in conversation. I always tell people in the beginning, listeners, again, the Lost and Founder book, but sparktoro.com is where you can find this tool, the fake followers audit that we've been talking about and all other tools, moz.com, moz.com for the SEO, for SEO tools, search engine optimization tools, and at randfish on Twitter. So back to it. And we're talking about email open rates in what, what would you say is like the, the rate that you should be getting? Well, when does it start to get bad and you start getting filtered into spam? Um, it, it is, it looks to be dependent on vertical. Uh, so one of the things I would urge you to do is check out MailChimp has an awesome resources section that includes the average open unsubscribe spam report rates by industry for uh, all of their, you know, the, the millions of, uh, of, of folks who are on their lists. And that I think is, is a good industry standard. MailChimp is popular enough now to where that's probably true across the board. And so if you look at those ratios and you're doing much better than those, chances are good you can get into the primary tab. Uh, if you're doing about average, you're probably seeing you know, a reasonable percent go to the promotions tab. And if you're doing worse, you probably have a lot going to the promotions tab and to the spam tab, uh, the spam folder, which is you know, basically you'll never get seen. Right. And I want to talk about, you know, some strategies to, I mean, cause you have, you know, with Moz and you're talking about in your, your book, I mean, you had, you know, you, you launched this one product, you send it out to 90,000 people. It was one of those MVP borderline like crashes. And, uh, you know, you're saying like only X amount of people signed up. And so you've had your, you've had your failures with, you know, not effective email marketing, but you've also, you know, of course, with having so many subscribers of Maz.com and being able to grow your revenue 30 fold, at least, uh, what obviously you need people to open your emails. That's at least part of it. Do you, do you have experience in sort of boosting that and more effective email marketing? How do you do that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, so we have had, we, we did have, you know, in the, what was I at Moz for 17 years there? 
um, you know, had many campaigns that were extraordinarily successful, you know, very high open rates, very high click-through rates, very high engagement rates. Um, even that, that, that failed campaign that we, that we talked about had an extremely high open and click-through rate. It just had a very poor ratio of click-throughs to conversions, and then an even poorer ratio of conversions, people who gave their credit card and signed up for one month, uh, sticking around more than that first month. You know, the cancellation rate was extraordinarily high on that that sort of failed product launch that I talk about in some of the latter chapters of, of Lost and Founder. Uh, and, you know, with SparkToro, one of the things that's been interesting is, uh, is Casey and I have been, Casey Henry, my, my co-founder at SparkToro, uh, we have been running a beta recently. So over the last three weeks, approximately, uh, we had, you know, some interesting numbers there. I'll try and publish them at some point, but I think currently, right, we have, about 13,000 people who had over the last year signed up to be on our product list, like our waiting list. You know, I want to get a notification when the product goes live, that kind of thing. Uh, we emailed all of them, just one email in the sort of toward the end of July and got a little over 3,000 of them uh, to take a survey. They basically took a survey saying, you know, here's who I am, this is why I'm interested in SparkToro, this is my job title and role, all that kind of information. Uh, so that's a that's a very high percentage, right? I was quite impressed with that. Not quite 30%, somewhere, somewhere around 25% of folks took it. Uh, and then we selected from there uh, 250 folks to, to sort of let into the first round of the beta and we didn't use MailChimp for that. We didn't use an email service. I personally emailed every single one uh, from my personal email. And I have found that to be one of the most effective tools for, you know, from a lot of uh, email marketing out there. I think not using a tool, using your personal email, writing a personal note to hundreds of people, it, it sounds hard. But it actually is incredible that the degree to which people will pay attention to that will actually respond, right? I, I say, hey, Jordan, was great chatting with you on the podcast last week. Excited to show you SparkToro. I've got, you know, here's the instructions to get into the beta below. Y you will answer that email. Oh, right? God, is, yeah. Right? That is a night and day difference between welcome to SparkToro's beta. Thank you for joining. You know, here are your connection details. It, it, it feels totally different. It, the answer rates are totally different. And as a result, you know, we've had, I think of the 250 people who we led into the beta, you know, only 12 of them haven't activated their account yet. Uh, only, you know, maybe 20 of them haven't run search queries yet. So, right, high, very high engagement rate. Um, and as a result, we, we get lots of good feedback. So you've sparked a new idea with me. I have this free resource, my lead magnet, which is called Podcast University. You know, it solves for all the unknown variables of podcasting. And right now it's just a blog post. It's restricted. That is, uh, you just enter, but you're, you have to enter your email to get it. But I record an hour long course, the video course, completely free, very professionally done, but completely free. I could charge a lot of money for it, but free. And I think what I'm going to do is email as many people who signed up for the original Podcast University personally yes. with the new video one. That's how I'm going to apply this. Absolutely. I love that. You, I think you just changed the direction of a lot of things there. I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, if, this is why I'm you know, talking. If you, have a, if you have a list and you have to do, um, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of emails, look, you kind of have no choice, right? The manual is not an option. But even in those scenarios, I have still found a ton of value in basically 
Uh, I'll export my personal contact list from Gmail, right, from my, my Google Mail account. This was back when I was at Moz or, or, or at SparkToro. I will export that and I'll do a comparison, right, a comparison between the email list that I've got and my personal contact list. And I'll take the five or 600 email addresses of people that I personally know, right, that I've emailed with directly, and I will email them personally and directly. Because that relationship building over time and the, the value that you get from like that um, initial burst of, you know, high quality people who are in your network uh, hearing directly from you is just impossible to uh, overstate. It's, it's huge. Right. And in 2019, we're receiving, people are receiving more marketing messages than ever. It's why are people going to buy from you? You got to take that extra step, go the extra mile and make yeah. it personal, build that, build that I, relationship. You know, I think it's really meaningful to have someone reach out personally and like say something that, that indicates that this is from them to you, right? They're, it's not a, hey, go buy this thing, right? It's not a marketing message. It's a, hey, Jordan, I, I am truly expressing my thanks for being on your podcast and I'm looking forward to it coming out. And it was cool that we got to chat about SparkToro. And here, if you want to check out the beta, like check it out, right? And that is just a completely different experience um, for both of us. Mm, mm. Well, you keep talking about a beta. Is there a, is there a special link for this beta that you that, that you open up to people or no? Eventually, eventually, yes. Eventually, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. I don't know when now. I don't know when this podcast is coming out, but yeah. I hope I hope by that time, um, yeah, we'll be we'll be ready for a public beta. So I want to go back to maz and you know you start your career by dropping out of school yeah. to go work with your mother essentially i don't even know that it was maz at that time maybe it was yeah yeah not uh, not quite i mean the, the maz name came a couple of years later it was like a personal blog that turned into the company that we eventually yeah. launched so why'd you do that did that feel like a big risk um, what year what year were you this was 2001 i was a senior i had three classes, two or three classes to go until graduation. Um, and, but it was, it was going to be a pain. I had to, you know, they didn't offer the classes the same quarter. So it would have been two more quarters of school. And, uh, and I was paying for classes myself. I'd gotten into a fight with my dad. I'm, I'm one of those very lucky kids who in two ways, one, my parents paid for most of my college education. And two, uh, back in 2001, right. This was before, um, I can't remember exactly what the executive order that that Bush signed that basically made it such that you had to repay uh, college tuition loans. And that basically skyrocketed the cost, I think unintentionally, right? But it skyrocketed the cost of college. And so when, when I dropped out in 2001, I was making you know, $4.75 an hour and paying for my rent and tuition. You can't do that, right? You cannot do that anymore, right? So... Um, but at the time, yeah, at the time it, it didn't feel particularly risky to me. It felt like, Hey, I can go back to school anytime if I really need it. And also I like working in the web world and no one in the web world ever reference checks. No one asks you if you graduated, I, I don't need a college degree in order to be a you know, web designer developer. That was, that was my, my sense at the time. It, it sort of turned out to be true. Um, but only because I became an entrepreneur and have never, I mean, I've never applied for a job other than the, you know, the 475 an hour college job at University Way. That's, that's it. Right. So as you ascend or 
before that, tell me, what was your original role in the company when you first start working? I mean, my mom was the, the sole proprietor and the only person who worked there. And I was doing some contract website development, like building websites for some of her clients. I dropped out to do that with her full time. Right. So. So, yeah. So as you ascend, though, yeah. from seven, you know, you and your mom, seven employees. Yeah, we didn't have seven employees until no. 2007, maybe. Yeah. So it was it was six years of sort of hard, hard to scale, barely making rent, barely paying the uh, bills every month. A lot of a lot of months I didn't even have uh, a paycheck um, for years. My mom didn't have a paycheck. I was uh, I was living with my girlfriend uh, Geraldine, who's now my wife. She was paying our rent and all our bills. You know, I was I was a bum. Hmm. And what was like the first thing that you what the first innovative idea, so to say, that you brought to the company where you, you started to make things happen? Because obviously, you were the catalyst for the growth. Yeah, I think I think it was probably this this blog, right? It was initially called SEO Moz, and then and then became Moz. Uh, that would have been two thousand maybe two thousand two. I started blogging. Two thousand three, I made it its own blog uh, on the SEO Moz website. That was that was sort of transformative in the journey, right? Because over the course of the next few years, oh four, oh five, oh six. Um, we started getting an influx of clients who found us through this blog, right? They were going to search engines. They were looking for information on search engine optimization. And, you know, how do I rank in Google? How do I rank in, at the time, MSN search and Yahoo and Ask Jeeves, right? All these different search engines that were popular until Google sort of dominated the market. And my blog came up, right? I, I was good at writing this stuff. I was good at getting links. I, you know, I was good at explaining information, um, I was, I sort of had this chip on my shoulder of, of anger about how uh, opaque and obfuscating the, both the industry of SEO and the search engines themselves were at the time. And so I was trying to make this information transparent and, and relatable and understandable for folks. And it resonated. You know, I think that was, it was, we didn't even know to call it this, but it was content marketing. I was very early content marketing. Could you imagine someone today saying, Gosh, I'm trying to rank in MSN. It doesn't even <laughs> no exist. Way. I mean, Bing search, but yeah. Oh, well, yeah, that too. So Rand, how did you begin learning about SEO? Is this something that you had always been passionate about or when did, because you're, I mean, I, I regard you as an expert in it. Uh, let's see. I would say it was probably in those, in those early years of web design and development, we, you know, we were subcontracting some SEO work to try and help our clients who we were building websites for get found in search engines. And uh, we stopped being able to pay those bills. So I, I started doing the work myself and um, got reasonably good at it after, you know, probably six months to a year of really struggling and uh, found, I think I found that I had a passion for it. I loved both the creativity and the technical aspect of it. Right. I like I like understanding how systems work. I, I find that really interesting. Um, I also really like sort of proving people wrong and um, and outing secrets. Right. I think that I think the world should be a more transparent place. And so the fact that Google and 
at the time, Microsoft and Yahoo, all these, all these big companies were so secretive about how they worked and the fact that I could uncover, you know, realities of how they did work and then sort of share those broadly and, you know, and, and bring a lot of value, right? Help a lot of people through that, um, you know, help a thousand times more people than we were helping with client work uh, to, to do their own stuff better. That, you know, that brought me a lot of excitement. I think that encouraged me to, to keep going, to keep testing and experimenting, trying new things, publishing about it, all that. Right. Now you had a great uh, graphic that you put up great graphics, by the way, on LinkedIn oh, that thanks. I see. Yeah. And you had one that was, it was hard for me to understand, but it was about like different C uh, CMS uh, content management systems like Wix and Squarespace, oh, yeah. and as as how and how it pertains to SEO. So, I try to explain this to people because uh, three years ago I was on Wix. I've been on WordPress for a long time now, and Wix is just not good for SEO. Like that's right. It's just not. It's it's hard to get found. Yeah. Yeah. Why is uh, that? So. That was actually not work that I did, but it was from a company called um, Fresh Shock, which is based here in Seattle. And yeah, let me pull that up. They did this, uh, they called it the 150,000 small business website teardown. So, you know, basically one of the guys at Fresh Shock, uh, Adam Doppelt, who full disclosure is also an investor in SparkToro. Uh, Adam basically crawled 150,000 small business websites that they found ranking in, in Google local results, right? For everything from, you know, uh, Seattle roofers to, uh, you know, Austin, Texas, landscape design, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? So, so small services businesses. And they looked at, uh, you know, everything from, you know, what kind of website builder they're using, what kind of host they're using, uh, what, what sorts of, you know, technical details they have about the site and which ones correlated with better and worse visibility in Google's listings. Right. So correlation is not causation, meaning it could very well be. It's, it's entirely possible that the people who use Wix tend to be very bad at SEO and the people who use, you know, um, WordPress tend to be much better at it. That, that seems that's a reasonable conclusion to come to. If I'm building my website, I'm still probably going to go with the one that the savvier people use, right? Like, why, why would I not do that, right? I, maybe it's purely correlation, maybe it's not causal, maybe there's no direct underlying uh, uh, factor that's happening there. I still prefer to do the things that successful people have done, right? And um, that is essentially what that study was generally looking at and showing sort of the degree to which, I mean, Wix is the outlier, right? Wix is the one where you just, you just look and go, man, that is, that is ugly, like they are, they are really ranking poorly compared to everyone else out there. And um, yeah, hopefully, I mean, hopefully that's something where the team at Wix can look at that and say, we got a problem. We need to work on this, right? Let's either we're doing something wrong on our end, on the, on the website builder end, or our customers do not understand what they should be doing to get visibility and we should help them, right? We should yeah. build features and tools and information to help them. Well, here's a case study and you take it for what it is, anecdotal evidence, it's all it is. But when I switched from, you know, in the early days, it was probably over, I mean, I'm only 21, that's why I say early days, but uh, it, was, it was 
over well over a year and a half ago now. And I switched from Wix to WordPress and my domain authority jumped from six to 12, doubled with the immediate switch. Like immediately it was from Wix to WordPress. I don't know what went into that, but... That's probably correlation, not causation because domain authority is purely based on the links that point to you. So the only thing I could think is maybe the Wix website had a bunch of, you know, maybe subdomains or like split off portions and you consolidated it all in WordPress. And so all the links you know, got counted, but, um, yeah, for, I have seen exactly what you're talking about with, with Google's visibility too, where someone switches off of Wix to WordPress and then they're like, gosh, my rankings are doing a lot better. I wonder what I did. And it was, it's just that WordPress is very, it nudges you to do a lot of SEO friendly things. I think maybe Wix doesn't do that as well. Yeah. Now let's hash this out. I want to talk about MVPs, Minimum viable products for the people who didn't understand when I just said MVPs, but minimum viable products and the way you said this made so much, so much sense. All, I mean, all my life I've been the, I, I just take action and figure it out as I go along the way, I grow as I go. And so essentially creating minimum viable products all along the way, especially when, when I started this podcast, nobody cared. I didn't have an audience. And so the first, the first episodes sucked and now we're on 130 and we have the that, well, oh my gosh, I just gave it away. Well, by the time this comes out, it's going to be past 130. So I should have said, I don't want to give away the recording time. But <laughs> uh, anyway, you know, this podcast has gone places I never could have dreamed. So you had, it was a great depiction. It's hard to explain in my head. You can explain it better. But when you have a big audience and a lot of notoriety, that is not the time. That is, you should not be releasing minimum viable products when you don't really have an audience, it's like, what do you have to lose? Is that, am I correct in stating that? Am I missing anything? Yeah, that's exa- exactly, exactly right, right? I think you've, you've got the, the takeaway precisely. That has been my experience, right? Essentially, that if you have a big audience, you launch something, you burn a lot of your reputation if that product, if that launch, if that content, whatever it is, is not good, right? People take a look at it. They sort of, well, yeah, it doesn't really resonate. And then for years afterward, for years afterward, people will say, oh, yeah, did you check out, you know, uh, Jordan's podcast, right? In the first, you know, the 50,000 people who saw it, 49,000 of them will say like, oh, I listened to one episode, you know, the first episode, but I didn't, I didn't really work for me, right? As, a, as opposed to, you know, if you have five listeners and it didn't work for them, well, what, what do you have to lose, right? It's not, it's fine. Those are the people who probably like you the best anyway. They'll give you, they won't give you a hard time. You know, they're not going to talk crap about you. They're going to wait for episode 10. They're going to stick with you. They're loyal, right? Um, but when you have that big audience, you have got to have a really extraordinary product at launch or people will associate your brand and you with something that's not great. And that right. can be you know, really damaging for your brand and reputation long-term. I saw this so many times at Moz where we would launch something, you know, we, we sort of thought internally, we thought to ourselves, hey, it's a minimal viable, minimum viable product. It's fine. We're going to improve over it, on it over time, you know, in a year, year and a half after we add all these features and other things and, and tune all these dials, make it faster, make it easier to use. It's going to be a great product. Let's just get it out there. And what instead happened is we had an extraordinary product 18 months later, and we had a market reputation that was crap for years. And we just could not, even, even to this day, 
Moz is a successful, I mean, relatively successful company, right? Maybe not in, in a venture capitalist size, but in, in the eyes of most private business owners, right? They look and they go, oh yeah, you know, 55 to 60 million revenue a year, you know, profitable to the tune of 10% of that, uh, you know, um, growing 10-ish percent year over year. That's, that's, a, that's a fine company, right? Good company. But its market reputation six years ago, let's say, was extraordinary, right? Almost everyone in SEO who, who was a professional SEO six or seven years ago would have said, I either recommend Moz or I use Moz or I like Moz. And today that's, that's much less the case. And the product is better. The product is way, way better. But in that interim period, it had a ton of launches that were somewhere between half-assed and haphazard. Mm. Burns the reputation, right? Really, really hurts. Absolutely. It makes so much sense. And uh, something that I'm going to take with me for a while now because I, I just never thought of it that way. I was always straight minimum viable product, minimum viable product. And I could get away with it. Uh, but now it's getting more difficult to get away with it. So that's right. No, now you have to have hits. Every episode better be good, Jordan. Exactly. I've almost considered replacing my old episodes yeah. with an audio file that says, if uh, this audio, th this episode is unavailable, if you uh, please listen to like episode 99 with Mark Manson or James Altucher or whatever, or Rand Fishkin. And like, I just, I cringe when people message me and they say like, oh my God, I was listening to this episode and it's like episode 17. And I'm like, oh my gosh, no. So here's, here's why I still like leaving that stuff up because I think that it shows I think it shows that there is no overnight success. No one is great at this from day one. And I, I kind of love that. I love being able to point back to, you know, the first ever Whiteboard Friday, the first blog posts I wrote and say, hey, I, I was just like you. I started out, it was, it was rough. I was worse than anything you're putting out there today. But over time, you improve. And, and I think that that's a, a very hopeful sort of inspiring lesson. And, and I think that, um, yeah, I think there's a lot to, a lot to like about having that, that history yeah. there. Exactly. And I mean, I'm, this is the attitude I've taken going into, I'm putting on my first event on in a couple, in a couple of weeks actually. And I'm thinking like, this is the worst it's ever going to get. It's not going to be bad, but this is going to be the worst it's ever going to get. And it's up from here and it's just going to keep getting better. And we're going to double our, uh, the number of participants come October's event and it's just going to get better and better. So I totally agree with you there. It is a beautiful and inspiring and hopeful thing. I, I like that. I want to talk about Silicon Valley startup culture and how it can be misleading. And I just loved how transparent and open you were to use a couple of buzzwords uh, throughout uh, Lost and Founder. And you're like, look, people think I'm rich and people come to me for like, hey, invest in my startup. But like you, yeah. you can like, look, I make 200,000 a year with, I made 200,000 a year with Moz. And I, like, it's funny. I look, you know, doing a quick Google search of you, one of the first things is, it's Rand Fishkin and then net worth. Net worth. Yep. <laughs> net worth. Yep. Uh, so why is it uh, why is it not as it seems? Like you've got this thriving company, but what gives? Yeah. So I mean, I think the the really interesting thing about a uh, doing a venture back startup is that until and unless you have an exit, you just own a bunch of private company stock. And you know, as we know from the startup from the math of of startups, 
90, 95% of those are going to return little to nothing to their investors. And that means little to nothing to their founders as well. So beyond a salary, there's, there's not a whole lot there. And your salary is almost definitely, not even almost definitely, your salary is going to be lower than it, than it would be at, you know, uh, a big company. Right, a Microsoft, a Google, an Amazon, a Netflix, what have you, right? Your Salesforce, you're, you're going to make a lot less um, statistically. But you're happier. And more I, I hope so. That, right, that's the trade off. Like, the, you better be happier because if you're going into this for the money, you are on the wrong path, my friends. Right? But money is not uh, the reason to do a, choose a startup over, over a big company. And so, um, I think folks just have to be prepared for that and aware of it and and know that the the stories of you know massive wealth being created is the one in a hundred, not the one in ten, not the one in five, not the everyone. Um, that that's just how how this works. Yeah, it's a great point that you make. You better be happier because I think about all the time, like, gosh, why can't I just be like my friends and get a normal job like things would be so much easier and less stressful and wow i but i would be miserable yeah I would be so miserable i i wish i could be happy with a normal job but i cannot so we take we take the side we take the road of entrepreneurship and working for yourself and creating building a company so there's it's a double-edged sword though. There's uh, there's benefit pros and cons of course, like with everything. And uh, so, I I don't know I don't remember why I wrote this down in my notes, but I I, I wrote, read something in your book where it made me want to get your opinion on this quote. Uh, it's from AngelList CEO of uh, which is Naval Ravikant. I'm sure who you're obviously familiar with, and he says. You can't get rich renting out your time. When you hear that quote, what do you think, Rand? Depends what you're charging. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I I think uh, Naval has a very particular Silicon Valley style bias to his own thinking about what rich means, right? So when, you know, when he thinks about it, I think he's thinking in terms of hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. And it is pretty true that very few consultants, uh, very few owners of consulting and services businesses are worth you know, nine and 10 figures um, are making that amount of money. However, if you are a reasonable, rational human being, you will recognize that that is 0.001% of all human beings anyway, and that chasing being in that group is somewhere between, you know, madness and uh, statistical, um, I don't know, ignorance, <laughs> right? And, and instead, if, if what you're looking for is, hey, I want to build a successful career where I can be making enough to support my friends and my family and take care of my employees and have a uh, lower risk, higher chance of a, of a, you know, very strong impact career, uh, a very happy and and healthy career, and one that is likely to make me plenty of money. Consulting and services businesses are awesome. They have a much higher success rate, much higher survival rate than product focused businesses. 
Uh, they have a much lower capital need, meaning you don't have to go raise investment. You don't have to go right convince other people to put money into you. And because of that, you get 100% of the returns, right? So if your company turns a profit, you now have that money, right? Uh, Moz, Moz is going to turn, I don't know, five or $6 million of, uh, of profit this year. I won't see a penny of that, right? No one, no one at Moz will. None of our investors will, right? It just it sits there, and hopefully, sometime in the future, the you know the stars align and the company either goes public or it sells or what have you, and you know we all make out from that. But that you know that profit does not does not go there. If you and I go into a consulting business and we have fifty bucks of profit, well, we each get to take twenty five dollars home, right? So that I, sounds I think like that, a really lucrative business that we started. Fifty dollars. <laughs> it's it makes it makes us a lot more money than Moz. <laughs> <laughs> infinitely, right? infinitely more. Yeah, infinitely a, more. A multiple of infinity. Yes, multiple of infinity. Now you had a you had a little. It was very subtle in your book about adding processes to your teams. But as a geek about process driven businesses, curious. Obviously, I know why it's important to build a process-driven business and build processes, but for the listener, why is it important to build processes and how do you go about building processes? Yeah, I am, funny enough, I'm, I'm nearly allergic to process. I really like being able to independently build things, which is why you know, I'm so passionate about small startups and building you know, a small team and, and those sorts of things. But uh, I, I will say that as Moz scaled, and I was CEO for you know, many of those scaling years, uh, what I saw was that basically the lack of process was truly harmful in terms of being able to um, drive efficiency. People could not spend their time well. Many people could not spend their time well if they didn't have a consistent, repeatable process to do so. And we couldn't build a consistent, repeatable business without those processes. Rather, you know, that is more true in areas like uh, finance and customer service. Uh, it's more true in some parts of marketing. It's more true in some parts of engineering. And then it's less true in sort of the, well, hey, we wanna get an early version of a new, you know, data collection system out there. Do we really need a process heavy system for the, three engineers who are kind of working on this. No, you, you probably don't. Now, once, once that system is stood up, once it is powering a bunch of customer data, do we need a consistent, repeatable process for auditing it, for making sure that that doesn't have errors, for you know going through customer support, for figuring out how to handle tickets, for figuring out the billing and the finance of? Yes, yes. you absolutely do. And so I, I think that the process in a scaling, entrepreneurial style organization works best when it is uh, relatively light and somewhat flexible, right? It's flexible in that you can apply it in some areas and pull back on it in others and everyone understands and is okay with that. Uh, and then you get very, you know, very strict and rigid with it in places where that makes sense. Mm -hmm. One of the last things I want to talk about is uh, you swapped lives with someone. This is going to be so interesting for the listeners. You swapped lives with a friend of yours who's the C CEO of a web, some sort of web services company in, in New York. Yeah, yeah, right? consulting, uh, SEO consulting company. Well, search marketing consultancy, yeah. Right. Local, it, yeah. So what's the overarching lesson here? 
that you learned from swapping lives? <laughs> There's so many. I mean, the, the thing is when you, you know, we swapped jobs for a week, but we also swapped lives for a week, right? So I, I lived at Will's house uh, in Philadelphia. I, you know, walked his dog. Um, I answered his email. We swapped emails, right? So like he had my email password. I had his. We, we took over each other's emails, which is, I think that is more inhabiting someone else's life than anything, any other experience you can possibly have. Um, if it's, if it sounds almost impossible to imagine, it was, it was pretty hard for us, right? It was really challenging. Um, but I think that I learned, you know, I learned a tremendous amount about how their business works. Um, I learned a lot about my friend, right? I learned, you know, a lot about how, um, how his brain functions, what, you know, what he thinks about, what are the challenges in his life and work, um, what he sort of balances uh, and doesn't. And yeah, it's a, you know, it was an extraordinary experience. I, I, I would actually love to do it again sometime. Um, mm. I think that, I think that there's no better way to get empathy for another human's being, human being's life than to sort of actually live it for a week. Yeah. I have no doubt if I, was in your position, it would be quite interesting and I'd learn a lot, but I'd also probably burn down your business unintentionally. So unfortunately, I mean, I we... it's hard to do. It's hard to do when it's, you know, two person co-founder, um, you know, early stages. It, it was a little easier. I think I think Moz was maybe 120 people at the time. Sear was maybe 80 or 90 at the time. So it was, you know, much more. Uh, comfortable and and achievable um, than either you know uh, than trying to do it when it's okay you know you and Casey in the shed like let's go build Sparktoro mm-hmm. absolutely so what what excites you as, as we be, begin to wrap up here what excites you the most about what you're doing in your new venture with Sparktoro. Um. I think one of the things I'm pretty excited about is being able to apply. Excuse me. Bless you. Apply all the lessons that I learned from Moz, right? I, uh, I I describe it in Lost and Founder as being like playing a video game for the second time, right? Like you, you know, you know all the levels, you sort of seen all the mini bosses, you, you know what the battles are going to look like, and you can, you know you can better prepare. You kind of know what's coming. It's not all so surprising. It's not all so feeling so overwhelmed and so underprepared. So I'm excited for that. I'm also excited because SparkToro is very different in what it needs to achieve. You know, I we, we did not raise venture. Um, we raised some private angel money that essentially is ownerships, uh, uh, ownership of units in our LLC and they get profit distributions. So our mission is become profitable. Which is which is such a much more achievable mission than than Moz's, right? Which is, hey, how do we get to a hundred million dollars in an IPO, right? Um, I am excited because SparkToro is not dependent on someone else's platform. You know, Moz was very dependent on Google's ecosystem and environment, right? And everything that Google changed, you know, Moz had to figure out and um, change its software, change how it change how it worked. SparkToro is is not right. It's its own kind of independent platform for for data about audiences. And granted, we we have to go out to places and get that data, 
but if you know Twitter gets you know frustrating to use or LinkedIn does or or YouTube does or whatever we we can pull from other places right we can get this audience data from a vast variety of sources uh, on the public web and as a result we're much less dependent on one particular you know platform threatening us or or doing something that that makes it hard for us to operate Excellent. My friends, please visit the Wizard of Moz, Rand Fishkin at sparktoro.com. Check out the wide array of tools there and the uh, the forthcoming beta launch, uh, which which is going to be right around the time of this episode, moz.com, moz.com, and at Randfish on Twitter. And again, Lost and Founder, he, Rand is going to introduce you to you a whole new world, the startup world, and it's something out in Silicon Valley and me here in Fort Myers. It was an enlightening experience, uh, might I say, yeah. Rand. So, thank you. Uh, yeah, so thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I really acknowledge you for your transparency, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, just very, uh, very noble, noble cause you have in, in you know, with your transparency. Yeah. Appreciate it. So, so my final question is if you could teach a course at a university, course of your creation or otherwise, what would it be? I mean, I do love teaching people about um, entrepreneurship and web marketing. Uh, I, I, have, I have been tempted to learn more, and I, I don't know whether this would mean that I would ever become a teacher of this, but I've, I've been tempted to learn more about sort of... Uh, ethics and morality that that is a really big area of interest um, for me lately I think that you know that sort of spans my entrepreneurial career but also you know sort of interest in politics and in um, and sort of understanding the psychology of people so that might be it excellent Rand Fishkin you are the man man. thanks for having me there you have it my friends this has been another episode of growth mindset university the podcast now if you enjoyed this one today all i ask is that you share it out to your friends family etc on your instagram story and tag me and our guest today and don't forget to message our guest as well so that you build your network as you listen and learn with this podcast And if you really believe that hearing the message of growth is important to the world and you want to help others find our show and you're not satisfied with just taking a screenshot and sharing this on your Instagram story, well, I've got good news for you. You can go the extra mile in helping spread this message of growth. You can leave us an honest rating and review in Apple Podcasts. We have over 200 ratings right now and it has made a gigantic difference for this show, not only helping people find the show, but getting awesome guests. Thank you all so very much. And until next time, my friends, make every day count, live to learn and grow to give.